130, 4.30, <clears throat> whoa, 7.30 and 10.30 a.m. Also at 1.30, 4.30 and 8.30 p.m. right here on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. And get ready for Living Writers coming at you very soon. Ken Butler playing the Viber Band for WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Stay tuned. got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased, so happy to have Alan Gerganis here in the studio. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, well, it's great to have you here. Um, just to start off, I'll read um, the very short biography, which we will then, um, we'll add to, <laughs> um, from your latest book the the practical heart um this was this is a uh, a book of four novella, novellas the practical heart alan gerganis lives in a small town in north carolina the title novella of this book won the national magazine prize his other honors include the los angeles times book prize the southern book prize and the sue kaufman prize from the american academy of arts and letters many prizes and many more not listed. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's so strange. You know, you sit alone in a room and write the books and do the work, and then they're not yours anymore. They're out in the world, and you hope that they bring honor. You know, it's sort of like sending your cow to the state fair. Some come back with medals around their necks and some don't. <laughs> right. You love the little malformed ones more than the big ones, strapping ones, I think. Yeah. Really? So, what are are the malformed ones? The short stories, or are those the? Uh, I mean, and the strapping ones. Uh, for example, the novel "Oldest Li- Living Confederate Widow" tells all. <laughs> well, the the scale is is not important, but there's what's touching is that sometimes the ones that you love the most are not mentioned in the reviews. The the, the stories that uh, that you adore, and uh, so that you know, it's I feel I feel very lucky to have. A readership and very lucky to have the work out in the world. Do you? Does that mean then, Alan, that you get feedback from some of your readership rather than just like the reviews? And I mean, because you're you're one of the obviously the heavy hitters here <laughs> on the, in the literature front of the United States, and so you also there's um a, an ongoing conversation almost with your your work and the New Yorker um, and um, <laughs> and and other. Uh, I don't know the places yeah. where the critics. No, uh, and there, are, there are the the conversations from readers uh, mean the most in a way, and um, 
you know, I got a letter uh, about oldest living Confederate widow from a mother in Israel whose child was in a cancer ward and who was reading this book and described the sight of the red cover on the book waiting in the hospital room as her companion and as a source of, of energy and strength for her to get through this event. It was very beautiful. Um, and I think that counts for every front page of the New York Times book review. You know, uh, one of those letters can really go a long distance toward making you feel that you're really in a communication with other people. Well, that would seem to be the real work of the story. Like, why... You, like your whole reason really for writing the story to make something, but to to have that connection with someone else through the story yeah. that it's meaningful, right? Well, I think the you know one of the things that I, I consider myself is a, uh, a a doctor of the emotions. That's what novelists are. We're we're all about um, emotion and history. And, um, and you know, somebody has said that all of fiction can be summarized and then something went terribly, terribly wrong. So stories are about people in trouble. And people in trouble are wildly emotional and wildly unpredictable in their emotions. And that's fascinating. Not always sen- yeah, not sensible. No. And, and, you have and, to and I think it's, it's, it's intriguing that, that of all... Uh, the human conditions that we identify most with trouble. It's as if we understand that we're, you know, we're mortal, we're born in trouble, we're going to be, become experts at trouble, and that in a weird way the act of reading a novel is a, a kind of manual on how to handle crises, how to survive situations and emergencies and wars. Um, I don't know. It's right, because even if the situation is different, the the um, the underlying emotion or um, how it's playing out is is the same. So exactly. that's the manual for exactly. it, right? And I think that and and it's a kind of investigation of ethics of of trying to figure out how much you owe other people, not just your wife and kids and your beloved dog, but how much you owe to the people on the block, the people in your state, the people in your nation, strangers in the Middle East that you're sent to extinguish. I mean, what are the absolute obligations of being a human citizen? And uh, that, I think, is... And not ignoring other members of the community, the citizens right. of your community. That's right. How big the Global. community really is, that's yeah. the question. Yeah. And... and um, and, and and you you wrote an essay that appeared in the New Yorker about uh, maybe was it three weeks after um, we first went into Iraq, um, and and because you felt a, a need to to speak out and say that because people were marching and there were there were marches in That's many right. U.S. cities. It's, um, it's but it easy didn't to forget that. Yeah. Anything. But I was a I'm a Vietnam veteran, and so because you were in the Navy. Yeah. Um, when I wound up watching the invasion. Um, and Rumsfeld's war and Bush's war, uh, I felt post-traumatic flashback. I mean, it was really absolutely horrifying for me, as it was for every thinking person in the country, to see this completely unnecessary invasion. Um, and I, I wrote a piece, and it was, uh, at the time, an unpopular stance. I mean, the magazine published only negative letters. One of the letters said, uh, 
Mr. Kukana seems to be su suffering from post post traumatic stress self pity, and uh, and I, of course, now eight years in, I've had an impulse to write the people who wrote the letters that were critical of because my of course letter. You could find those on the yeah, internet. Exactly. Their addresses. Very easy, <laughs> yeah. and just say in a kind of. Not in a kind of "I told you so," or, you know, nya 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 way, but there's always an element of that, I guess, in the liberal ethos. But to, <laughs> but to say, you know, how do you feel about the war now? And do you, or you feel that your good faith was justified? Uh, so, I mean, one of the fascinating things about being a novelist is precisely that it makes you. Um, accountable and interested in everything that's going on in the world, and and I think that um, accountable. Yeah, you feel I'm the eldest of four sons, and I'm I think birth order is profoundly important, and I always I always feel somehow that if I don't read the news on a given day, then no wonder there was a revolution in Africa because I just wasn't paying attention. It's kind of magical thinking if you can just hold it all in your head somehow you can uh it's like people who are obsessive fans from michigan wearing the same sock to every game you know i mean we're all basically barbaric superstitious pagan creatures uh, we dress ourselves up in university robes and with um you know religious outfits but we're we're all barbarians really uh, and I think the sooner you just go ahead and admit that, the better. But I, I keep thinking that if I can just purify my own life, I'll somehow make the world a more peaceful place. And of course, it's it's, it's absurd, but it's how it's how I proceed. You know, it makes sense to me. Well, and how so? Is part of purifying your life? Does that have something to do with choosing writing? Um, uh, because you started off as a painter, that was some of your formal training, and then when you, because um, you were a conscientious, conscientious objector, you tried to not go to Vietnam That's because right. you believed at that point you knew that that wasn't the right, the right thing, the right way to be in the the world that without war. Um, but you you had mentioned I think that your parents were Republicans at the time and saw nothing strange about sending you to fight for the country. Um, but you chose the Navy. That's right. And that sort of made all the difference in because you obviously didn't bring an easel and paint with you on board. No, there was a, a library on board the USS Yorktown, which had uh, 4,000 men on board. So it was like a floating village. And it was only in the library that I really began to be bored enough to actually read a book from cover to cover. And having started out as a painter... Um, it never occurred to me that I could read a book, much less write a book. I mean, I was, you know, I grew up in the woods. I was one of those kids who was never in the house. And at dawn, you know, I was out and exploring and on the bicycle and and imagining myself as a Tuscarora Brave or Davy Crockett. I don't know who I was, but I was everybody at once in the woods. And so, so definitely the world of the imagination, but yeah, it was a that's kinetic right. relationship yeah, to the imagination. populating a landscape. So suddenly having this claustrophobic reality of sleeping in bunks stacked five high. So my bunk was the top bunk, and I had about you know two inches between my nose and the steel bulkhead of the aircraft carrier. 
um, the only place for the imagination to go was was inward, and and so at that point, reading a novel was a, a beautiful kind of escape. It was almost like a furlough, and a necessary escape for me psychically. And earlier, you had said um, that that it's your you feel like it's your role as a as a human being as a writer to to try to purify your life and that will have some effect hopefully because <laughs> that's all we have control over right our own life to some extent um if that but um is that part of the writing is that where purifying your life also it's done through the writing yeah i i don't think um being an artist is uh, uh, in lieu of therapy, I think um, you know therapy is 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 a very different kind of exercise, but it is uh, a rite and ritual of self knowledge and of of understanding um, what made us the way we are, um, of being like all wise people, all ages at all times. I mean. You 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 sit in a studio with a bearded sixty two year old man, but I'm actually six years old and kicking around in the leaves that I saw when I walked in here, um, and I'm a thousand years old. You know, um, I mean, Proust says that time is synchronous; that we're all all ages at the same time, and there really is something to that. And when I'm in the act of writing, when I'm living in a novel. I have a double kind of life or a triple life in relation to my dream life, which is also an extra layer. So it, it's, an, it's a weird kind of power. And you want to be uh, the, the best possible landlord in that landscape. You want to be what God is not being to this particular reality. You want to be, um, you know, uh, generous and open-hearted and observant watching the ups and downs of the characters with a kind of even-handedness and a kind of clarity and, and purity that comes from knowing yourself in a strange way. So it's a, it's a privilege. And believing, yeah. That's, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back. Terrific. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Alan Gerganis, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Alan Gerganis, and we've got Tex in our engineering seat. Thanks to Tex for making us sound good. Um, Alan, w- would you mind reading um, for us from your, from your latest, um, The Practical Heart? You won't be reading the title novella. You'll be reading from one of the... Is this, is this an example of one of the stories that, the, that you said you loved, kind of the, the malformed ones that the, <laughs> the, the critics aren't necessarily calling upon in their reviews? Or Well, one of the, one of the tr- minor tragedies of um, 9-11 is that this book, The Practical Heart, which is six years of my life, uh, came out the week that the World Trade Centers went down. And so... Uh, all of fiction stopped being reviewed in Time and Newsweek, and it was just, you know, uh, not a time when anybody wanted to read anything but the newspaper to see if who was coming over the hill at them. So th- though the book has done extremely well in, as a paperback, it was sort of lost in the act of, of being born. So uh, I love it when people tell me that they've read it because I feel like it's, it's one, of, one of the history's you know, casualties. And um, the particular novella that I, I'll just read the opening from is called Saint Monster. Dad screams, I mustn't see them at it, but I race across our backyard toward the darkened house. Under me, short legs are stunted flippers spinning, my old tricycle on its side, I hop. Dad, lagging behind bellows, come back, son, leave them be, don't go in and look, let sleeping dogs lie, she loves us anyways. Three lawns behind, he waves the white sling of his newly broken arm. He's a smoker and is stumbling and keeps hacking the old sweetie. Daddy begs me not to catch the two of them at it at some deed, but I clamp palms over my ears. I must not obey, Dad. I am only doing this for him. Our rear screen door is latched. I make such a fist. Knuckles break through rusted wire, a fry of brown powder. I jump, then chin myself on the door's crossbar. Reaching in, I unhook everything. Don't look! Dad's voice smears, but I am through our kitchen and clear into the shadowed living room. I've run five paces past already seeing them joined. My elbows out, I slide to a car screeching brake halt. My mother, so pale and beautiful, is so beneath him. The couch's many printed roses look cactus-sized, thirstier, as smothered as my mom. The man's back is tanned and stretches longer than three of me. His bare bottom is vanilla, rocking like mom's foot-treadle singer. But somehow into mom, a derrick over, into, over, into her. Her fist hold hair behind his ears, hair gold as coins of my play money, white summer pants bunch around his ankle planted on our rug. Though he twists and sees this woman's eight-year-old standing right beside the couch, the man's lower back sneaks continually on, letting Mom have it, blam, there, blam, there, letting her have what I'd like to know. I cannot figure out how I understand what I am partly seeing. I simply know he's giving Mom a major one of those. Pinned under such thudding, her knees have risen not that far from Mom's own ears. She now turns slow, notices me whole here, screams, Can't be! What say, pal? 
Doc's tone comes casual. Bugs Bunny. He talks right over at me. He's naked so happily. Dead level with my frown, he crunches one dry wink my way. What's up? My chest quaking, I point to him. Bad, bad, bad man! Then, for reasons past anything merely sayable, I jump onto a fellow face down in mom. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. <laughs> the primal scene, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Always the best one to read on the radio. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I can tell you're, you've got experience Take doing this. Take it from this. the top, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, ama- it's amazing <laughs> nice to think that, you know, a kid can see his mother in that position and both know and not know what's going on. It's it's a kind of wrestling hold. It's the violence of it is all that's visible. The sensation is completely unknown. But he's defending the father outside and the story really is a kind of love story about protecting this 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 father with secrets of his own. Oh. And so that's an amazing opening for the, the Thanks, thanks. The, it's it's fun to read. <laughs> Um, and and it, I think it bears mentioning that all of when this so so vintage um, put out the paperback of the Practical Heart, and when they also have reissued the old, oldest living Confederate widow tells all um, plays well with others and white people. That's right, which is nice. So that everything's everything's thoroughly in print, yeah, and in beautiful. no danger of going out of print. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful sensation that everywhere you go, you sort of see your work. It's it's very thrilling and very unusual. It it is, isn't it? Even with um, a book like, uh, well, your your first your, hmm, where to go with this? Your first short story was um, came out when you were twenty four, was it, Alan? I think so, yeah. And that was in the New Yorker, right? And that and and I correct me if I'm wrong, but what I've read about this was that you said it's it was the kindest almost the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you when when Cheever uh, submitted the story for you minor heroism and then it was accepted because you thought it wasn't he did it without you knowing and and uh, could you talk a little bit about that that yeah I, I was a student at Iowa in the writer's workshop and Cheever was my teacher it was my first semester there when I worked with him and of course, he had an established relationship with The New Yorker, having published, what, 136 stories there. And um, without my knowing it, he sent the story to William Maxwell, a wonderful, wonderful writer and, a, and an amazing editor. Uh, and I dedicated Minor Heroism to him because he was so tender in, in editing the story and encouraging me. But he called me, uh, Maxwell did, from The New Yorker offices in New York in my $60 a month Iowa City apartment and said, uh, this is William Maxwell at the New Yorker. We like your story immensely and would like to publish it. And I said, oh, yeah, and I'm Mae West. Who the hell is this? <laughs> he laughed and said, well, I actually, I, I am whom I say I am. And if you'll call the New Yorker offices, I thought, oh, great. I've made lost my first sale in one idiotic minute without knowing a sale was pending <laughs> exactly because i hadn't sent it but cheever understood that i was readier than i knew i was and i didn't really publish widow until i was 42 and so there were many years in between when i was 
I was, you know, working out a long apprenticeship. I think part of it is a, a lack of confidence, but other aspects are just learning the craft in, in a very old-fashioned way. I started as a painter, and I had an exalted idea of how good you had to be before you really had a show of paintings and had, had a book to, to, to offer the world. I understand that. But this this apprenticeship of yours, I wonder what... So was it on a conscious level? Because it seems like when you were doing, when you were reading, um, like on the USS Yorktown, for example, you you found um, Henry James there, and um, uh, and and Dickens, and 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 you started by doing like making your own imitations of pieces of their work right. or their uh, yeah. I an art school, you know, because I went to the Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia. Uh, we it was a very old-fashioned school. David Lynch was one of my classmates there. I mean, we we've all we all went on to do crazy and interesting things, but not painting necessarily. Uh, and what we would do is, as in the 19th century and the 18th century, we would be sent into these rooms with great life-size Greek statues, and we would drew, do charcoal renderings and drawings of these Greek statues to look as much like the original as possible, and. So I did that with with fiction. I would read a Dickens novel, and then I would write the middle chapter of a of an invented Dickens novel, uh, taking care to create the characters in that wild, zany, insane way that Dickens does, and push them into action in the way he did. Do you uh, still have these notebooks? I I Alan? kept. I do. I've kept all all my notebooks from the period and. And it's painful to read them um, in in one way, um, because it sounds some of it sounds like a, like an eleven year old girl's diary, you know. But I hate Edna. I love Edna, alternating, and and yet in other ways, some of the writing is better than anything I can do now. So. It's a, it's a weirdly mixed bag, but it was just because well, modeling on Henry James, there'd be like the lyric quality would be there, and the long looping and expansiveness of it. That seems to be where you went with oldest living Confederate widow tells all as a model in some yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, the big nineteenth century triple tiered ocean <laughs> liner of a novel. It's always been my ideal, and I even in contemporary novels, I. I like uh, the Tin Drum or Hundred Years of Solitude or big capacious books with thirty or forty main characters. That seems to me where the real guys, the the real mature artists, go to try to recreate an entire world, not just a sliver of it. Which then, and so it's probably not unfamiliar to, like, or strange to you when people say uh, the heir to Faulkner, or you know, about you, or so. Or, well, it's, or maybe it's annoying to be the heir of someone. Uh, You're just you, I, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a stiff order. That's sort of like being son of God, the Mal Father <laughs> Almighty. You know, you're not going to end well. Uh, I mean, Faulkner was both uh, is, was a genius and a miserable human being. He was a, uh, uh, an alcoholic from a line of alcoholics. He had really he had no choice. Destiny had singled him out. And it's it's fascinating to to read him and to see the wages that uh, alcohol took. I mean, if you read the Snopes trilogy, the first of the volumes was written when he was a young man before the inroads had happened. And you read the second two, and you suddenly see 
Uh, it's like looking at an X-ray of a of a damaged brain. Uh, so so I I adore and admire him, um, but I'm I'm also a, a little afraid of him as an example. I'd rather drink less and write more. Well, it seems like some of the lessons that you learned from your teachers or your writing mentors, like that. That was that some of these lessons about it's true. vices rather yeah, than it's true. necessarily. And Cheever, you know, I mean, wrote very honestly uh, about his his own alcoholism and so forth and so on. In and, the journals, and, and I think I learned a lot from trying, as I said earlier, to protect him. I really, you know, if you really care about somebody, you want to help them in any way you can, and. One of the ways you you learn from a mentor is to see what you don't want to be as well as what you do, and 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 still there's still that love for them and that admiration. Oh, tremendously! Yeah. And and what he did for me, I've tried to do for my own students, uh, just to say yes more, and I think that's the essential uh, offering that a teacher can give because we're all self-taught, really. Uh, the university provides uh, the contacts between teachers and students, but really what goes on between us is very personal and very mystical almost. The reckoning with the art itself. Exactly, exactly. And to uh, identify earliest what a, a, an artist can do best and to call forth that. And instead of pointing out what's missing, um, to try to pull the positive forward and hope that whatever is absent will will complete itself uh, I think is a is a great mission and it's it's one of the things that I'm enjoying this week at the university I've, I've seen so many not only uh, talented students but students who really seem to care about each other and who excite and stimulate each other and that's a very healthy and and this is and that's a beautiful these are beautiful things your mission is a good one and, and generous and and we're going to take a short break and Great. we're going to come back um you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor I'm T Hetzel today on the program Alan Gerganis we'll be back
Good afternoon. If you're just joining us, you're in great luck. Because today on the program, Alan Gerganis. Um, I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Alan. <laughs> so let's, let's talk. <laughs> Good, I'm ready. Absolutely. <laughs> so you also said that we, we've mentioned that there was the, the publication of the first story in The New Yorker. Um, and I didn't realize this, but um, that first story also... Um, it was the first time there had been a, a, a gay protagonist that was portrayed in the fiction of the, like, so in the history of the magazine. Um, did you know it at the time or was that something that, what, yeah, no, it, where, I, that it, seems monumental. It came and, out, it came out, so to speak later. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I wrote the story. I wrote a story that's based in part on my life and, my relationship, my contested relationship with my own father. And uh, it happened to be about a gay son, but I, I think fathers and sons, mothers and dogs, mothers and cats, and dogs and cats, and mothers and daughters, and fathers and sons, it's like the perpetual motion machine. It's an endless battle. And what was moving to me was how many letters I got from fathers and sons and saying, why is it so difficult? And your story touched us and we talked and it, you know, it helped us or it made me remember my frustration with my father or, uh, I want to be a better father to my son and I find it so hard to talk to him or. So even then you were getting letters. Yeah, I, for me, that's a, a huge part of why I do what I do is, uh, my imagining the books in people's houses or in people's cars and you know sometimes it's it's miraculous you're on a subway and you actually see somebody reading one of your books or in a library once when this this particular story came out i saw a man reading the new yorker and i knew my story was there and i walked around behind him and i saw that he was reading my story and i was you know i was a kid it was very very exciting to me it was almost sexual it was so exciting and so i I went and sat so I could see his face. Of course, you know, egoistically, I imagined that he was going to, you know, break into tears and have this great catharsis. And I slowly realized that he was having a deep emotional experience. He was closing his eyes. And then I saw him nod off. That's when I, re <laughs> I realized, you know, it was not Maybe gonna, he wasn't your target audience. It wasn't just, he, he just didn't get it. No. I wanted to spill coffee on him and make him read up and f finish the thing. But uh, but it's it's fascinating to put it out there. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're a performing artist, you know uh, on a given night whether somebody's got your songs. Because the energy is absolutely. being exchanged in the moment. Yeah, but, but what we do is so abstract. It's 26 letters of the alphabet on, a, on the pages of a book, which is sent <laughs> out, you know, through the U.S. mail and might or might not reach other people. So it's a, it's really kind of thrilling when you finally make contact with your audience. And you have such, it seems like a sense of of community and, and the sense of valuing the people around you because you made a, you, you had an allusion like to this, um, this long term of uh, apprenticeship, but other things were happening during that time because it, you had returned to New York or, gone to New York City, returned there, um, 
and and then this is when um, the AIDS crisis uh, impacted your your close right. friends, exactly. your life. Yeah, I moved to New York in in seventy nine, and the first real cases that we now recognize were about eighty eighty one or eighty two, and so we had three. Uh, years uh, to party seriously. <laughs> and what a party it was. Oh, what a party. And when I wrote my <laughs> novel, Plays Well With Others, uh, the the party section is three quarters of the book. I thought I was going to be writing about, you know, AIDS wards and funerals, but it wound up taking up less and less of the book. And and I'm, I'm very happy about that because I think of it as in a very exuberant, uh, a, a comic novel that has AIDS in it. And uh, some of the reviewers said there can be no comedy around a disease. And I you know, want to say, yeah, and, there, and can there be no comedy around a war? Can there be no comedy about death? Of course. And how do you get through it? Like, if you're writing about life, honestly, what are the ways that we get through the, the, the tragedy of, in the daily life, whether it's disease or Oh, absolutely. Gallows humor is humor. Yeah. Because I mean, we're all... We're all marked. We're all not going to be here forever, and we understand that. And instead of making it sadder, it can, if you're lucky, it can laugh at it. And, or and it deepens, what, allowing the sadness in, because otherwise right. you can't manage it, can no, you? No, it, it can overwhelm you. I, I, I'm fascinated with the word comedy. I, I think of myself as a comic writer. Uh, it's based on the Greek kamos, which means to dance, uh, a dance or a pageant. And um, it's very beautiful to think of the procession from the cradle to the grave as a kind of dance. And to the extent that we can all see ourselves as a part of this larger movement and as one ant in a huge hive of ants, uh, to that extent, can we be off-duty occasionally? Can we be happy? Can we coast? Can we enjoy our food? And when we feel that... Everything depends on us, that we are the pivotal center of the universe, that uh, com community is based on the taxes that we have to pay, but there are no benefits coming back to us. Uh, that's when you really do feel lost and separated. But more and more, I want to write not about specific individuals only, but about the individual's relationship to the community. Uh, I'm very heartened by this food movement in America. And, you know, I mean, there are farmer's markets everywhere. Um, and the local, like exactly, looking to the local again. Exactly, this emphasis on getting back to giving some dignity to the, to the dairy farmer who's making the ice cream that is the best ice cream in the world because it's never been uh, had preservatives added. And, you know, he should be a celebrity in his community, and he's becoming one now. That's kind of sane. I, I think that that movement back to celebrating the particulars of a given agriculture, a given a given um, territory, is is very very heartening and beautiful as a development. And and going back for a moment to the humor aspect, because um, and there's lots of humor about dairy farming. <laughs> just, oh, yeah. just imagine the scenes you're going to create with that, Alan. Mm. Um, all the machinery, the, the udders, um, but there there are these moments um, of humor, I, like especially like one um, plays well with others in that moment where, and and you can almost 
because there is something about humor and then there's something about uh and with writing it's interesting because it is about timing and what you're letting like letting go of like letting in for the audience and then these moments and there's um a scene where this uh, the protagonist uh, hartley is being um rushed to return to one of um his friend robert who's dying um has asked him to go and make the, his apartment ready for the parents arrival <laughs> and and by that means like get get the porn out and the dildos um I think I'm allowed to say that. I'm sure I'm allowed to say that on the radio. But and there's this where he's putting them in like the department store, um, like uh, like a bag to, to carry them on the subway. And then it's raining. And then of course you start thinking, oh no. And then in the subway, these bags break. <laughs> and there's thirty dildos everywhere. Yeah. And the, it's just and the judgment that's there from the other passengers. <laughs> it, yeah, it's 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 a moment of. Um of pathos and, and, and comedy. It's grotesquery. And, you know, when you're really, really tired, uh, your defenses are gone and you feel like you're a transparent piece of glass. And that's when everything goes wrong, when you have the traffic accidents and when you drop 30 dildos on a moving subway and have people shrieking and running from you as these rubber little lozenges are hopping around like Mexican jumping beans. Uh, and and then there's a quick turn, and he is going to lose 30 friends. And so the 30 dildos become almost religious objects and become devotional figures. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested, uh, as a devotee of Chekhov's stories, about how quickly it's possible, e- even in a single sentence, to move from a comic vision to a tragic vision and back again. I used to think that a book was either comic or tragic. Now, I then I moved to thinking that a, a chapter could be maybe both comic and tragic. Then it becomes the paragraphs sentence. and sentences. And now, you know, almost as if the first syllable can be comic and the second can be tragic. I mean, and that, because that replicates how I see the world. I mean, every, you, you're out on a gorgeous day in Ann Arbor, you know, it's fall, it's, you know, it shouldn't be 70 degrees, but it is. And then you pass a, a newspaper rack and you see a headline about Afghanistan or a slaughter on a military base. And suddenly everything's changed. Yeah, frozen. done by the psychiatrist exactly. of the military base. So yeah. it's, you know, it's it's that, it's how fiction can register as finely as possible those wild shifts uh, in human experience from feeling exalted and elated to feeling powerless and worthless and back again that I think uh, makes the fiction useful to other people. And when people can, re- uh, the, uh, it strikes a recognition in them, there, then there's that connection. That's right. Right? Um, the, the local being the universal. And, and it seems like there's like, uh, you've, you've, um, you go back to New York City, but that's not where you're based now. You're based in, in a, you call it a village. Yeah, I so, live in a town of 5,000 people. Or, oh, so do you, you do say town, because I was going to ask you On about the radio, the I say village. town. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, why? Wait, let's just I say village. No, Does village villi- sound too I don't like... think a town is, is 5,000. I think a village is, <laughs> I don't know exactly. We have to look that up. Yeah, what's the definition? Uh, but it's a village to me, because um, I... Uh, everywhere I walk, I know people. I, I I have my own walk and my own patterns, and I go to the post office and I hear the gossip. And for me, it's extremely comforting, and it's and it's a throwback to the small town that I grew up in, which was 
much bigger than the one I live in now, but remembers as being about the same size. And it's pretty. And it's pretty close to it. Like uh, you live like it's like an hour and a half away, Alan. Is it? Or it's close to my hometown. But I'm crazy, but not so crazy that I would move to my hometown. <laughs> I mean, I would always be my father's son, my grandfather's son, grandson. It's just uh, I want I want the right to make myself up at least partially, and uh, and I and I love this little town. I, I feel very close to a lot of people there. I mean, just before I came here, I found out that. Uh, Mexican-American family uh, that helps me with my old house and uh, people who've really become friends. Um, and we've been working on their citizenship papers for eight years. I finally got their interview for citizenship today. So, And I, I got this message. They were just, I could hear them jumping up and down the and joy. rejoicing, you know, after immense patience and thousands and thousands of dollars of legal fees. Uh, we are, you know, we are really keeping out what it the takes most amazing people, and so who I, want to be part of the community. Absolutely, <laughs> but but knowing their reality and being in their home and and being a, a small part of this quest for citizenship has just enlarged my life so much and colored how I how I see the totality of nationality. And it seems like you're always open to it, Alan. Oh, that's open. part of the fun. I mean, yeah. if I had maybe 350 years, maybe I would shut down for some of it. But, you know, we're here so so little time. You want to crowd as much as possible. In. It, there is some urgency, isn't there? Absolutely. Well, we'll take a very short break. All right, and God. then we'll come Let's back. Keep it short. Okay, Thank we'll you. keep it short. Okay, today on the program, Alan Gerganis. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Alan Gerganis. Alan, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> um, we'll do it again sometime. Um, Alan, I wanted to ask you about one of your first mentors. Um, so there's, there's no chronology to this conversation, as you can tell. But um, Grace Paley um, and, and how she had, she, she had given you like the advice to like because you had been writing in that Henry James and the Dickens and the, the scope, this vast scope. And she said, honey, that's not where it's at, basically, right? Is yeah, that what it's, happened? It's about how people get along or 
what they have to do to survive with other people. And she gave me three lines of advice. And I immediately had that light bulb over the head experiences. Oh, I see. I I was writing 19th century prose, and now I get to write 20th century prose. And I, I literally ran back to my dorm room with my little Hermes portable typewriter and just started typing what was really, I think, the first real story I wrote. Uh, what story was, was that? It was a story called One Family Repeatedly. It was it was written in short sections about a single family, and it was later published uh, somewhere, but it, 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 it was just... Uh, uh, suddenly I felt I had access to my own life, my own material. And Grace Paley was uh, one of those great uh, human beings that had a tremendous impact on everybody who encountered her. Uh, here I was. I was uh, a Vietnam veteran just just back from Southeast Asia, and I wound up in her class at Sarah Lawrence. And she had been uh, devoting her life to ending the war in Vietnam. Yeah, and, very politically active. And always. you'd think that um, she might have had some mixed emotions about letting a soldier into her class, even though I had, as you said, I was somewhat shanghaied into the military. Uh, instead, she welcomed me with open arms and urged me to write about the experience and and saw what I could and couldn't do and led me to read people like Isaac Babel, who remained great gods to me. And just by her example, her physical courage um, showed me how to be in the world and showed me that there is, you know, there's no division between being an artist and being a political entity, between being a uh, you know, a, a novelist and, and a citizen, that it's all part of one thing. I feel very impatient when people um, are are uh, judgmental about those of us who really, really care about justice and the environment and racism and homophobia and all those like issues. Like as if that, that doesn't are, belong in art. Yeah, exactly. What else? I what mean, belongs what in art? What are we here for? <laughs> My God, please. I don't want to make posters. I want to make paintings. But I think you can make very powerful paintings that participate in the sense of 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 an equitable, healthy world, you know. And Grace was, was uh, that kind of figure for me and during her whole life. And uh, I saw her last. She was in her 80s, and she'd had breast cancer, and it had come back in a in a in a strong way. And she came to North Carolina, where I was living, to speak at Duke. And I saw a notice on a bulletin board saying, "We need a driver for Grace Paley, who's coming." And you know, you'll get $25. So I went into the office and I said, "I'll be the driver, and I don't really want any money." So I got to be the person who met her at the airport. and She must have been so thrilled hey, to darling, see you. look who's here. Oh, my God. So we hung out for two days. She spoke at synagogue. She talked at women's centers, and I was the driver. And just before she went back to Vermont, and it turned out to be maybe three months before she died, um, and it was the only time we were going to see each other. It was so clear. She would never be in North Carolina again. Uh, I said to her, can I ask you a favor? Will you come to my house? I want to show you where I live because I love my house. It's a great old arts and crafts house that I fixed up. And So I said, we, we won't even have a drink. I just want you to be in my house. And so she 
she saw immediately uh, what I had made of this place. And then I said, uh, here's my study. Will you lay your hands on my desk? Will you bless my desk for me? Sure, honey. So I walked out of the room. And of course, being a nosy novelist, I looked back in and she... She had her head bowed and she had her hands open, palms down on the desk, standing in front of the desk, just saying incantations and davening. And then I, I, I got her in the car and I took her back where she was staying and we went to say goodbye to each other. And, you know, I owed her so much, so much had passed between us. And she gave me this look, this last, it was the last look. And it was smiling. It was just this open-hearted communication, like, this has been great. Haven't we had a good time? What a beautiful, Joy, positive, uh, a complete affirmation of respecting each other as artists, as people, as citizens, and just the privilege of having known each other all these years. And And there were no words exchanged. There was no goodbye. There was no follow-up. And then... When somebody called me and said, you know, Grace died today, I felt we were completely up to date with each other. And that's what we what we need to have with our parents or with our loved ones and our, our, our ailing friends is just to feel that if you did hear at any moment that they were gone, that you would feel, okay, well, there, there, there they go. But, you know, there was no pending business. It was something, but it was that some sort of exchange of the moment that I think goes back to what you were saying, Alan, about who you are at this particular moment. You're um, uh, 62, did you say? And you're six years old, kicking in the leaves. And it's like having that kind of um, moment with another. It's very beautiful. And I think it's essential that we, all of us are, are really, really lucky. I mean, to I think there's a certain kind of happiness that those of us who are able to annex our luck, and it's not what we deserve. I mean, there are many people uh, more brilliant than I and and more deserving than I, but one of the capacities that I have, I think, is that um, my luck has allowed me to pay attention to where I am at right now. And I know people who are only in touch with their unfortunateness, uh, with their with the, the the things that were done to them at six, they were done to me too. I mean, we've all we could all write a book of miseries, uh, but wisdom tells us to hold on to the light and to go with those things that are affirmative and that bring us into contact with other people. And and on and off the page, it seems to me that's the goal: is to be as present as possible to as many people as possible. And and I learned that from Grace and from Cheever and from many other beautiful and wise people who preceded me. And there's something about the solitude too, because that's what what the nature of what your other your, your focus, the writing, and also which is a way of communicating and connecting and being present with people. But part of that requires the solitude as well. But finding that balance where you're also. Um, Believing in the possibility of happiness as well as the possibility of art. That's right. Yeah, I, I think you know, for me, spending six to eight hours alone every day certainly makes me much happier to see other people. I, 
sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you know, when I spend a, a week uh, in a vacation house with 14 other people, uh, kids, old people, dogs, cats, goldfish, um, I'm really seriously ready for some solitude. I, I have to have it. I'm a cranky old bachelor, and I, I need it. But the the benefit is that when you finally get with people, you are truly with them, and you're fascinated with them, and you're curious about them, and you you are um, are you know looking at them not only as um, inspirations for your next novel, but also as you know as as fellow sufferers, as, as as company. Yeah. Yeah. That that compassion. No, wait, what's, I guess, pathos, that would, would that be the Greek word? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, e- empath, I mean, <laughs> I mean, sympathy means that I, I am like synonymous. I am like you. Empathy, em- empathy means uh, I am you. Hmm. We are, we are in it together. We're all together. The same person, the same entity, the same planet. Well, thank goodness you're in it, Alan Gerganis. Thank you so much. I've loved our conversation. Uh, well, it's been, uh, me too. <laughs> um, Thanks again to Tex for engineering for us today. Thank you, Tex. And Alan, thank you so much. And for picking the songs. Oh, thank you, Tex, for spinning those discs, some of my favorites. Yes. Um, You've been listening. Thank you for listening, Ann Arbor and beyond streaming, whether you're in Florida or England, Chicago, wherever you are, North Carolina. Um, Today on Living Writers, I've been talking with Alan Gerganis. Please come back anytime, Alan. Thank you. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, May 8th, 2013. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, in Pakistan, election workers and candidates are defying threats and violence to reach voters ahead of this weekend's poll. 
House lawmakers returned to the Capitol, taking on measures to deregulate Wall Street, cut overtime pay for workers, and impose austerity cuts. And forest communities in Brazil and Mexico raise concerns about a plan in California that allows industry to use carbon offsets to combat climate change. Those stories and more coming up. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. For the third consecutive day, hundreds of Bolivian miners, factory workers and teachers were in the streets demanding pension reform. Today, a group of miners blew up a bridge along a major road connecting the eastern and western parts of the country. FSRN's Aldo Oriana reports from Cochabamba. The Bolivian Workers' Center, the largest organization of unions in the country, called for a nationwide general strike and blockade. The unions want the government to reform pension laws to increase monthly retirement stipends for 70% of a worker's final salary to 100%. Union members block roads linking the west with the east, hurting trade and passenger traffic. The government called in police to remove the blockades, prompting fierce clashes with factory and mine workers. Several people have been injured. Today, dozens of miners were arrested after they blew up a bridge on a major round linking La Paz to the eastern and south part of Bolivia. Interior Minister Carlos Romero spoke to reporters after the incident. La policía 